Hey, everybody. This is episode 320 of the App Percussion Podcast. Uh, today is your host, Kayla Pickering. Uh, I'm back again hosting. And a surprise co-host today kind of returned from the grave. We have Casey Candrelosi's back for a visit. How's it going, Casey? The, the beginning, the alpha, and the, uh, and I, f- I forgot the, the quote. Yeah, hi, everyone. Back for a bit. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's back to do his quarterly evals on how the podcast is doing and cut Ben yeah. hopefully at the end. Speaking Read of Ben. GPS reports. <laughs> yeah. uh, ben Charles is also here. How's it going, Ben? Hey, Caleb, doing well. How's your uh, spring break going? It's going okay. I had one of those, I had a recital right before the break started, and then I flew down here to Texas. To oh, yeah. um, it was great, but it's one of those things, I'm sure y'all have experienced it, where you you're building and you're working, it feels like you're nonstop. And then you just hit like a field of nothing to do. And it's kind of like uh, yesterday, I just kind of sat here and uh, played Nintendo Switch for a couple of hours. And it was really cathartic and, and nice. But <laughs> how was that? How was the recital? You, you told us you did like a 30 minute sort of theatrical run together thing. Yeah, yeah. Something I think I'm going to do from here on out is a 30 minute lecture recital beforehand it seems like it goes really well um the faculty got something out of it even uh the students got to get a little deep dive into some of the works and yeah did a about a 30 35 minute kind of seamless uh transition of i did some other pieces as well but i did silence must be the terry demay solo conductor into casey's uh gender of metal which is a timpani-esque type solo and then into Casey's Bad Touch, uh, the one for lighting effect and uh, gesture with the stick. Uh, and then into a piece Casey and I both played called uh, Commitment, sorry, Ritual One Commitment B2M, which is a Jesse Marino piece where, or sorry, Marino piece, where basically it's a boys to men track, I'll make love to you playing in your ears and you f- smack a snare drum and turn on the lights on and off on the, the back beats. And then as it gets to the, I think the second course, the music just kicks on over the loudspeakers and plays, and then it's gone. Um, so it's, it's a really, um, it's a fun, fun little kind of dive out of fluxus is what I, I called it uh, for the students, but it's great. Um, they enjoyed it. A lot of laughs. I thought that was gonna happen, but that's okay. I'll do the John Cage. I'll take laughter over tears. Cool, um, cool. Yeah, I have a student playing uh, Casey's Bad Touch right now. So, Casey, they'll be emailing you for your birthday year. Uh, if anyone else needs that, you can email Casey. 1995. 1995. That's good. <laughs> cool. Well, hey, kind of jumping into our history for today. Um, it's a pretty interesting one. So looking through history, for music at least today, uh, this episode is releasing, releasing on March 17th. Surprisingly little happened on the March 17th of history, uh, but one uh, big fact, uh, Nat King Cole was born on March 17th, 1919, was of, of course the, you know, the master jazz vocalist and pianist. So in baseball, they call uh, someone who's kind of good at everything, they'll call him a five-tool player. It's like a treasured player, so it's someone that's fast, they have good defensive players, um, they throw really accurately. Uh, they can hit for average and power. 
um, you know, just kind of like being well-rounded percussionist. And typically, if you have one of those strong skills in baseball, uh, you can have a pretty strong career. And then if you have what Nat King Cole, they call him the, the five-tool player, of course, for music. But if you have all five of those skill sets, you become somebody like, you know, King Griffey Jr. or Mickey Mantle, somebody of that caliber. Uh, but for Nat King Cole, um, he was kind of jokingly called back in the day the, uh, that he wore the five-tool cap. So Cole was the originator of the original guitar, bass, piano trio format, uh, which played an extremely influential role as a pianist. Uh, he also broke down barriers between jazz and popular music, as well as race within the music charts. He became a true multimedia superstar, one of the first, actually. Um, he was the first African-American to host a nationally broadcast television show, uh, The Nat King Cole Show on NBC, um, all the way back in 1956. Uh, so Nat King Cole is credited with launching one of the most popular trio configurations of jazz, uh, the piano, bass, and guitar setup we were talking about. And as the story goes, in 1937, they had a gig, and the drummer just was a no-show, didn't show up, so it forced Cole and his guitar player to comp a little more uh, interestingly and a little more uh, densely, and he liked the sound, and that became his, his ensemble going forward. So Cole's big break came in 43 when his trio signed up uh, with the then-fledgling Capitol Records, which, of course, Capitol Records now is one of the biggest record companies in existence. Um, his composition, Straighten Up and Fly Right, with Cole on vocals and piano, became a hit in 1944 and sold half a million copies, which was quite high for the time. Uh, it not only crossed over from the race charts to pop music and the pop charts, but it vaulted the barrier between jazz and popular music and started kind of melding the two. Uh, so Cole went on to become Capitol Records' most successful recording artist of all time, sorry, of his time. Uh, the Capitol Records buildings that is in Hollywood on Vine Street is now kind of jokingly known as the house that Nate built. Uh, sorry, that Nat built. Uh, he was the original king of all things media. Uh, he was a very successful pop singer. He hosted his own TV shows we talked about. Uh, he played all the big rooms in Vegas, toured internationally, and was an actor as well. Uh, the singles charts of the late 40s and mid 50s sported at least one of his recordings every week. And when the very first Billboard albums chart was published on March 15th in 1945, uh, the King Cole Trio was number one and stayed there for several weeks, um, right when Billboard's first chart came out. Um, and that led to his biggest recording project of all time. It was his number one pop single, uh, jazz pop single, if you will, uh, I Love You for Sentimental Reasons. Um, and that kind of turned Cole from a jazz pianist singer into more of a lush, semi-jazz pop balladeer. And then he went on to, of course, write the Christmas song, which became one of his biggest all-time sellers that we, you know, all here in December every year. And at that point, Nat King Cole uh, trio basically became a thing of the past, where Cole became basically a standalone artist. It kind of draws a parallel to like there's Destiny's Child, and they were like a powerhouse trio. And then Beyonce just kind of took off and was her own thing now in the future. Um, so since today's topic is the beginning percussionist, uh, Cole's family uh, actually started the Nat King Cole Generation Hope. Uh, his two twin daughters started it. It's a nonprofit whose mission is 
to provide access to music education for children with the greatest need by cultivating opportunities and funding programs for instruction, mentoring, and resources. And since 2008, the organization has brought music programs to 40,500 children from underrepresented communities, includes music camps, instrument donations, uh, subsidies for lessons and teachers, and conferences and summer programs for students and teachers. And, you know, uh, funny enough, come full circle, uh, the Generation Hope Summer Jazz Program is actually semi-regularly taught at Florida Atlantic University, where Ben used to teach. That's pretty interesting. I did not know that. I was never there for that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you, missed, you must have missed that one. Um, but yeah, it's a, I had not heard of that organization before reading about them this weekend. Um, but it's funny enough, it says 40,500 students reach, and they've only have funding of just over $2 million since 2008, which is actually a pretty small amount for, you know, nearly 14 years of successful outreach for music education. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. But speaking of the beginning percussionist, our guest today currently serves as the Associate Band Director and Director of Percussion Studies at Briar Nelson High School in Trophy Club, Texas. His drumlines have achieved high placement at the HEB, Plano, and Lone Star Drumline Contest. Prior to his appointment at Byron Nelson High School, uh, he was the percussion director at John Horn High School, where they placed third in the 2012 PAS Marching Percussion Festival in the Standstill Division. Uh, his students have made Texas All-State bands consistently, with two as recently as 2021. That was just a few months ago. Uh, they hold a bachelor's degree in music ed from the University of Louisiana at Monroe. They performed with the Monroe Symphony Orchestra for five seasons and then played 13 seasons as a percussion with the Allen Philharmonic in Texas. They were featured as a soloist with the orchestra by performing a marimba concerto in 2004. He is an active percussionist, drum set player, adjudicator, and clinician in the DFW area, serving on staff such as the Role Models Percussion uh, Summer Camps and the North Texas Middle School Percussion Camp. They're an educational artist for Mapex Majestic and have presented percussion clinics at the 2019 TMEA convention, the 2021 Art of Teaching Music Symposium, the 2021 Strive Mind Director Symposium, and the 2021 Texas Bandmaster Association convention. And most recently, I believe it's the 2021 Midwest Conference. Um, yeah, yeah, just, just a few months ago. Hey, please welcome to the podcast, uh, Mr. John Bingaman. John, how are you? You guys, thanks for having me on. Absolutely, yeah. Your your bio is so extensive. I think we're about out of time, but it was nice. Uh, <laughs> it's <was> very impressive. <laughs> okay. But funny uh, enough, um, John, I didn't realize until earlier today when I was student teaching um, at Poteet High School, and then later teaching lessons at North Mesquite. That was in about 2012. I think you were working at John Horn at the time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. I don't think we ever bumped into each other, but we were definitely in the same, the same little cluster. So that's crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how, yeah. Small world. It is. It is. And it, you know, you go to all these contests, you go to marching contests or all region auditions and everybody does know everybody, you know, it's, or you've seen this person or you've heard of this person, you know, it's just, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, no doubt. So Today's uh, topic is the beginning percussionist. I specifically thought of John because he has a new book out 
um, you know, fairly new. It's I think it came out last fall, if I remember. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah. From Foundations, and yeah, uh, John was kind enough to to send me a copy to to peruse through to kind of get more familiar with. And yeah, it's a it's a powerhouse book for sure. Thank um, you. I would I would definitely recommend it. But kind of jumping into it, um, I've taught beginning percussion in the state of Texas, uh, where you teach. And I imagine the majority of us here on the show, including those who aren't with us today, um, have taught beginning percussion at some point in our lives, whether it be a beginner class, a beginning band class, or even one-on-one -on -one individual lessons. Can you kind of walk us through your approach to pedagogy and teaching beginners specifically to be just successful? Because you have quite the track record of it. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, you know, I when I first started this, you know, it was 21 years ago when I when I became a percussion instructor in, in Allen. Uh, I rec I recognized pretty quick that like um, that the beginning percussion class has a direct result or a direct effect on what your program is going to be down the road. Um, if they do get through that beginning year and they have learned some things incorrectly, some things are very hard to to correct. And, and learning how to judge when something is strong enough to reach the point where you want it to be eventually, or if it's deficient enough where it won't reach that point. I think that's that's one of the things that you want to develop, that, that sort of judgment. Um, I do think that there needs to be a protocol in the classes, something of organization, uh, but it doesn't have to be militant. You know, like it, it, it's it's organized. I would categorize my classes as being organized and, and, and ordered, but it's not necessarily always like you can hear a pin drop um, because I do want some bit of engagement there. I think the engagement is, 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 is important. Sometimes you can have really quiet kids that aren't listening to you at all. And I've seen that many times. Um, in terms of like what I'm trying to do with them, I'm trying to get through uh, a certain amount of material in, a, in, in the order that I think is going to yield the best results in terms of like the next logical approach for everything. Now we'll kind of talk about that with the book a little bit later, but building their, their technique, building that rebound stroke, understanding, making them understand how important the actual techniques are and what these sensations, building sensations in their hands, such as rebound or, 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 or those kind of strokes, building their timing to a really, really picky level. And when I say picky, I mean like they have to be picky about it, right? And, and it's, it's important for us to be picky about it, but if they're not in a position to be picky about it themselves, if they're not aware enough, then they can't really do it. So we have, I think like trying to teach them to like the things that you like and to hate the things that you hate. Like, you know what I mean? Like if they, like when we hear flat flam, we hate the sound of that, right? You have to teach them to hate the sound of that too. Uh, if you, if they only just like, don't like it because you said so, uh, that's not enough. Like they have to like dislike the sound or dislike things that aren't quite right. Um, and then, of course, this is the time to really drive home things like um, the importance of being well-rounded. You know, you, you mentioned that earlier, um, that, you know, snare and, and or, or, or drums and mallets are just as important and the accessories. And then being able to, to execute on the accessory instruments and crash cymbals and bass drum and those things like that. And the knowledge to do so is, is just as important as playing a great double stroke role or playing scales on mallets. That's where you really sort of create that culture uh, of doing that, right? So, so you're creating a culture and sort of a belief system and creating a value system with the students that's going to be long lasting. 
Like you're basically creating currency in your program. Like what makes someone good? What makes someone really um, think that they're they're successful? Or what is fun even? Like what did you define fun? I can show you a class that's having a ton of fun, but they're not learning anything, right? What type of fun are they having? Are they having fun of accomplishing and learning music? And then of course, the last one I would say is like the ability to practice well or to start, at least start that, right? You know, um, as musicians, we have to practice practicing and, and understand how you accomplish during that time, teaching them how to use their time wisely and to practice and that it does work and it can work and starting those positive cycles of reinforcement through uh, time investment. Uh, so I, those, you know, I, I, if that's what you're looking for, you know, that's, that's my basic idea of pedagogy and the things that I'm trying to get across in that beginning year. Um, and of course, a certain level of proficiency towards the end, there's certain types of solos I want them to be able to play and, and certain things I want to understand, you know. John, well, I love, I love what you said about you want the students to hate the stuff you hate. And of course, you want them to like what you like too, but get that in their ear, like a popped flam, you know, or a flat flam is something they start to dislike also. And I think that's so relatable to how I like to approach teaching non-percussionists as well. It's like, hey, can you just learn like, hey, that that tom-tom that sounds like a trash can, you should just learn to dislike that. And you, you need to get a sense and a palette of what good percussion sounds like, because a lot of people approach an instrument and it just sounds what it sounds like. And they take the drum as the authority. They say, oh, that timpani sounds really, yeah, like a, like a trash can. And, but hey, it's a timpani. It probably knows better than I do. So like, like how do you get that aesthetic into the student's ear and, and get them to, like you said, like dislike the popped flam sound? Well, it, that's a great question. You know, uh, first I start with, you know, some point demonstration, right? You, you, I would demonstrate a good flam and then I'm really about, hey, tell me when this is right or tell me when this is wrong. And, and I'll play something, I'll play a flat flam or I'll play a flam that's totally off and they'll say, no, that's not right. Okay, cool, guys, this is the one, right? Now you try to execute it. Now, as you can see, it doesn't automatically happen for you yet, right? So obviously that's a skill that you gotta pay a little bit to get. You gotta, you gotta spend some time doing that. I think one of the, the mistakes that can be made sometimes is the only sort of negative demonstration that we do is is super off bad, right? When we demonstrate something incorrectly, we tend to over-exaggerate something that we would never do. And I've sort of like really crafted the, the skill of demonstrating the flam that's just a little too tight. Like too tight, it's like right there or demonstrating something that's just a little bit off and making them go, wait, was that right? And then making that may have finer detail. If, if everything you demonstrate is so just something that we would never do, right? then they don't, they don't understand that like close isn't good either, right? Like, and so I think bearing it down to that, to that level of just really, really tight execution early on, right? Not, not taking them for granted. Yes, they're in sixth grade or seventh grade or whatever, but they can understand that if you present it to them that way. I think, Very uh, cool. yeah, from my perspective also, like sometimes, uh, something like that a leading question can help. Like you're not telling them what to hear, but it's like, okay, remember we want flams to sound a little open. So is this right? Um, but John, I, I had two thoughts that popped up in my head while you were talking and I was just sort of reflecting on my beginning percussion experience, which was uh, not 
not great. Um, <laughs> but uh, one thing you said was like you had certain like fundamentals that like you have to, like for example you have to learn to play in time early on. If you don't learn that, it's gonna like multiply and be a bigger problem down the road. And I that was definitely one for me that I didn't have as fundamental. But uh, first question I was wondering what are some fundamentals like that that you see commonly overlooked. Um, and then my second question is, you mentioned one of the sort of essentials is diversity across the body of percussion instruments, not just only being a marimba player, only being a snare drum player. And I think that a lot of the time, um, less experienced middle school educators will sort of use uh, like playing snare drum as a reward. Like, oh, if you play your uh, scales well, you can now start snare drum which I, I don't like. So I was wondering if you had any tactics to encourage players to branch out to uh, the diverse family of percussion instruments. Sure, okay, so there's there's a couple different things here. So number one, the reward system for the thing, I would definitely not do. And here's the, the big reason why is that you have to start with the, the drum element first. Now this is, again, I, I feel very strongly about it. It's still my opinion at the end of the day. But I feel strongly enough that like, if you don't start with the drum element, the hands don't get developed. Therefore the mallet stuff, even if you are striking the right notes and they learn how to read and all that stuff, they'll never really develop. Or when I say never, I'm using that proverbially, right? Like it'll be more difficult and maybe perhaps further down the road than you would like in the development. Okay, let's go with that. Um, but you're slowing the process down a lot. So first of all, I think the sequence is just important. The when is just as important as the what. Right, so you want to start with the the drum aspect, really develop the hands and that kind of thing, and then branch off into the mallets. Now, when you go to the mallets, I think making it as as um, the least intimidating as possible, meaning that that you're not afraid to to do some very basic theory things at the beginning. Take the time to do the musical alphabet um, to make them understand the instrument. I think one of the things that that really turns students off in the beginning from mallets is they don't understand it. And we know as humans that we don't like things we don't understand. Right. Yeah, I think that's why the kids that already play piano are always the ones because they understand. <laughs> they do. Right. And now this is great. Right. Because it, it's right. You know, I think the, the best thing you could ever do is just like, hey, say A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, G, F, E, B, C, B, A. Now, obviously, I go slower than that, you know, but we do the grid. It's forward and backwards. <laughs> um, but you know, do it first. And I, you, it's a very common thing here in Texas, but the first time you go to a marimba and you go, all right, in the right, I, I say left garage and right garage for G is left garage, A is right garage, right? You know, so you learn that note. Now, A, B, C, D, E, and they just do that. And immediately they go, oh, oh, okay, sure. Versus like, no, this is a C, the C is here. Now the F is here, right? They, they get kind of intimidated by that because they now that they see it as this thing they have to remember, which it is, but there's no familiarity with like any sort of system that they can perceive, right? So knocking that sort of wall down of, I don't understand this, I hate this already, will really open the door for the mallet stuff. Um, I take the opportunities with the accessory instruments when we do uh, our band time. Sometimes that is for the winter concerts and beginning band. Uh, every program is different. I have some programs that will do one right around March, uh, just you know, in just right before spring break or right after spring break, and very commonly at the very end of the year, right? Whenever we go into that, where we're teaching band music, 
that's when I really take the opportunity to explain those instruments. And I talk to them as much as I can about that, about the importance of, of making those instruments, you know, sound the right way. And I'll do several different instruments. Um, you know, I like to do clabes where to show them like, all right, here's some clabes, you know, try to play them. And then they can't do it and they give them back to me and I go, wait, maybe they're broken, you know, and I do that. Um, so, it, and they, they kind of get a kick out of those things and they start to understand and like, okay, it's not just automatic that I can just play all these instruments and you have to know how to do them all. And so they sort of get into that. Um, skills that I think are overlooked sometimes. Uh, I think that technically the acclimation of the fingers to the, to the stick is, is overlooked. Um, now I'm talking for people that are teaching a rebound stroke that are trying to do that. Obviously there's a large spectrum. So there's at one side of the spectrum, there's people teaching rebound strokes, which is great. And then the fingers to a student seem like they impede that process sometimes. Like sometimes the fingers can stop the stick from rebounding. So then they sort of like want to throw their fingers off. On the other side of the spectrum are like when people just teach, like they, I've seen people hold the stick like this and then the students just play and there's nothing going on under the hood, right? They're holding the stick into their break, what I call the break, which is right here on the side of the hand. They're just doing, and they're moving their wrist, but there's no action from it, right? So if you're on that side of the spectrum, then obviously the rebound stroke is overlooked. But if you're on the rebound stroke of the spectrum, sometimes the fingers flop out, which actually reduces the wrist motion, right? Because I, just, I, I, or I love the students that want to play. No one on you know podcast land can hear this, but they try to use their fingers by like pumping their fingers in and out. It's like, well, you use your fingers, but not... Not like, Not like that. that. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm telling you. It, yeah. It, so Yeah. And they start doing it and you're like, no, man, that's not it. And so, and, and, and then you get into like all the remedies of that stuff, right? That's where I kind of get into the weeds a little bit. It's as I look at it kind of like, you know, if you were to see a doctor and you get a prescription for something, they, they see, you know, okay, cough. All right, now do this. Oh, okay. Here you go. You need to do this. Right. And I think that's in the part of the profession that's really fun is kind of getting into that kind of stuff. Um, I think the buzz sometimes is ignored. Um, that fine motor skills of the fulcrum um, can be really ignored. Um, and I, I think that helps to develop the fulcrum a lot. And, and I do now, that being said, obviously the double stroke roll, when we're doing that, that's something huge that I want the beginners to be able to do in their souls at the end of the year. But don't be afraid to get into that buzz. And going back to the finger acclimation thing, the crescendo, decrescendo, like having some sort of exercise that forces them to stop the stick from rebounding quite as high. It's very difficult to do that without finger fingers on the stick. Very difficult to do. Um, and so, yeah, I would say those are the ones, without getting into like too deep into some stuff, like I think those are the ones that I would say are, are sometimes forgotten. Yeah. Hey, kind of jumping ahead a little bit, um, just because, yeah, Ben brought up things that are forgotten. Um, one of my, I think my favorite class to teach is the university percussion methods. And a huge issue with university methods courses um, that often isn't being addressed by the professor in the class, um, not, not to throw shade at anyone in particular, it just slip, you know, it slips up sometimes, sure. um, is, you know, of course we have to, if it's a one semester course, you're, you have to trim the fat somewhere. So maybe we don't get that far into one thing, but we do a little more of another. Uh, but the big one that seems to come up is 
I know this doesn't happen in Texas as much, but addressing um, homogeneous methods versus heterogeneous methods within a beginner sequence. So basically teaching percussion alone is a, is a homogeneous class of, you know, a beginning percussion class for anyone that might not know. And then a heterogeneous class is what you might find in states outside of Texas where, you know, percussion and low brass might be together, or you might just have band and that's and, how I started. So you started <laughs> madness. It seems like madness when yeah, it's like, all right, flutes, here's your fingering. All right, trumpet, here's your here's your fingering. Get this right partial. All right, snare drum. Just keep time, I guess. Um, do your best. Yeah. Um, but Don't no, hurt I, anyone, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know half the podcast teaches in Texas, and I grew up in Texas, and John teaches in Texas. So we we all have a, I'm sure some rose-tinted um, glasses on for some of these topics, but so kind of an open-ended question to, to both John and Ben, I, I guess especially um, both of y'all, because you, I don't think either of y'all grew up in Texas. Um, do you have any tips out there for, how should I phrase that, future band directors, essentially, um, or future percussion directors that are going to be teaching in those classes of, wow, I got to manage flutes and percussion, or I just have to teach percussion in the context of band. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> it is definitely a challenge. I think, I think there's, there's, smaller material that you want to get to. And so you want to really um, shrink it down to probably that first year developing uh, as good of technique as you can, playing some basic, some basic exercises and basic techniques. But one thing I would say is, is, is but if you look at the makeup that class from a percentage standpoint, the majority of the students are wind players, right? And then you break that down into brass and woodwinds. So the majority of your comments are going to be uh, brass embouchures, embouchures or woodwind technique that you have or woodwind embouchures um, and very little, if anything, would be related to percussion. So maybe perhaps look into doing something outside of the classroom for the percussionist early on and getting them to a certain point with specific exercises. That way, when you're making a comment in class, you're making a comment about something that's established rather than something that's, that you're trying to establish because you're not gonna be able to establish something with them in that environment. So I would say to try to establish something outside of that environment or have someone come in after school. I, I would bet that those students would jump at the opportunity of, of having some attention outside of school. And then when they do come into the classroom with all the other, the other students, they could make hey, percussion, make sure hey, that thumbprint's on the stick over there, Bobby you know, blah, blah, blah. But Bobby knows what you're talking about because there was a whole session or two or three about it. Versus like, if you made that comment to Bobby in the middle of that class while trying to teach that, no, it's not effective, right? Because there's no, there's nothing there that they can latch on to and know it's previous experience. This is maybe a, a bit more esoteric, but I remember in my brass methods class, the, the horn professor came in and said, how many of you feel prepared to teach horn today? And, you know, a few brass players raised their hand, but I sure didn't. Uh, and he said, well, if you think about it, if you teach beginning horn, most of the things you're going to be teaching are rhythm, note reading, uh, like timekeeping. It's not, it's not anything horn specific. 
And so that's like my favorite line that I've taken into, into my percussion methods classes that I teach is like, yeah, you might not know all the exact specifics of how to hold four mallets and everything, but especially for beginners, most of the issues aren't at all instrument specific. Like if, if, if they are, you're, you're probably doing very well for yourself. Um, and I think that like one thing that, that I wish I was exposed to more was just like listening to music just for music's sake. And I mean, like taking five minutes out of the end of class to listen to a little bit of a symphony or something and just talking about the composer and the, the piece itself um, or not or popular music or anything. Um, but I, I think that just basic good musicianship is often overlooked as a, a practical skill that you can teach. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I had a student teacher, uh, I have a student teacher this year that was watching me teach the class and we were playing um, a crescendo, decrescendo exercise and, and, and there's a stagnant measure in there where they're playing very soft. And, and we were just working on that. And I stopped and I said, hey, what do you guys, what do you guys hear right now that you couldn't hear before? And, and it took them about a minute. Finally, some kid goes, yeah, it's like the lights are buzzing or something. And I was like, yes. How come you couldn't hear it before? And, and another kid goes, well, because it, it got louder. It must be like kicked on a different way. And this other kid finally goes, because we're playing quiet. And I said, yes. And I, and I said, guys, we are asked to play soft as musicians, not just percussionists, to create windows and opportunities for other things to be heard. And I said, just like those lights that are buzzing that we could not hear the entire class until we got out of the way and we're playing really quiet. I said, that's why. And so, you know, those musical concepts you're talking about, I think sometimes when percussion classes, if we don't explain those kinds of things to the students, when they get in a band class and they say, hey, you're playing too loud right there, it becomes adversarial instead of like musical, right? Like it, it, they're, they think they're being like, you know, pointed at. And, and the student and my student teacher was like, yeah, nobody ever really explained. It. I remember they never really explained that to me in high school or, or even like even in high school. And I was like, yeah, you have to explain it to them like that. Or again, they'll think it's like us against them or something. And, and how and, dare you cover up the clarinet? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and you have to you have to really I think going to your musical point of like that, I, I, I think that's just as important of a teaching thing as as a fulcrum. You know, yeah, yeah. You've brought up um, kind of leading questions a lot, and Ben mentioned that too. I think the the best thing I took from Gary Cook, who's one of my master's teachers, and ironically, his book is called Teaching Percussion. But he was like, "Yeah, I hate the word teaching. I like the word facilitating learning." And I was just like, "It took me a while, but now I've come around to." And of course facilitating learning and percussion is like too long of a title for a, a method. <laughs> right. But um, but yeah, I've always, I've always thought that was a kind of a, a wise saying sure. Gary's. Um, hey, Ben, you had something in relation to student teachers. Speaking. Yeah, I was going to ask at the very end, but you, you already mentioned student teachers. So I was going to oh, ask. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so I had, uh, to, just to put it in brief, I had a very poor student teaching experience. Um, and so and just hearing you talk, I'm like, I wish I could go back in time and student teach with you and then go back in time earlier and take beginning band with you because I think I would, <laughs> I would be much further off, uh, much better off today if I had done those things. But um, what 
especially because we probably have a few music education majors listening, what advice would you give for someone going into student teaching in terms of what they should be getting out of it and how to get that out of it? Uh, as well as maybe what are what are things that you try to do as a mentor teacher for student teachers? Well, um, I think one of the most important things that they need to do is to get out of it is to to ask questions about their curiosities. And and I, I know that seems like a very mundane answer, but I, I'll, let me explain. Sometimes I have I have student student teachers that come in that they're, they're very accomplished. You know, we have we have University of North Texas right there. Um, and you'll, you'll have some, some student that's, that's, you know, a very good player and they, they come from a very, uh, accomplished programs and things of that nature. And they have very strong opinions about what they, what they know or what they've been taught. Right. And, and I'm not saying that they're not open. That's, that's not what I'm saying, but they also will hear you say something that they don't quite understand, or they've never heard before. And rather than ask you about it, they just won't say anything. Right. Well, if, if you don't say anything, then you're not actually like understanding what just happened. And so what I will tell a student teacher when they come in, it's like, you see me do something or say something that you didn't really understand why I did. You need to ask me after class or, 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 you know, something like that. And, you know, I remember doing that this year and my student teacher goes, okay, well, when you said this or blah, blah, blah. And then I explained it to him. He goes, Oh, See, he was about to just in his own head, right? Like maybe, and I, I'm just assuming, you know, right? It, it, it's just like, well, I didn't, I didn't really understand that. That's not the way I would have maybe done it. And, you know, okay, cool. But then once we had a dialogue about it, he was able to understand where I was coming from and what I was trying to do and why I'd made the decision to do that. And so now we have lots of great dialogues. And I've done that with every student teacher I've had. Uh, where I want to have a dialogue with them about whatever they saw. And, and, and it's an opportunity I look at as an opportunity to learn myself. I like to, I learn from everyone that I can. Um, and, and, and people think of different things in different ways. Obviously, to come in and be open-minded about it and um, about, you know, the, whatever it is they're observing. You know, sometimes people come in and they say, I want to do this, or, and then they figure out they don't want to do that, you know. Um, or they've never thought they would like this and now they really like it, you know, so the open mindedness and the dialogue with their teacher, uh, their supervising teacher, I think is really important. Yeah, we, we've been stressing so much the, the students at Northwest Missouri State are just like, no, you've got to, in the methods classes, you just have to milk it for everything it's worth. And when you're student teaching or helping out, you know, local programs, you got to get in there and just ask questions and, and milk that info and collect it. Um, so yeah it's, yeah, it's great to hear Yeah, you and your student teacher have, have that nice dialogue relationship. Um, they kind of speak, we mentioned your, your new book at the beginning of this episode. Um, and it's, I mean, it's still, of course, fairly new, uh, under a year, I guess, at this point. And I was kind of thinking about it. Uh, there's not a ton of beginner percussion books out there in the grand scheme of things. Um, you know, of course, there's things like stick control that we sometimes excerpt out of and stuff like that. But um, really, the, the you know the big two, or I guess big three. You know, we've got Ken and Wiley's successful steps that I've I've used a ton. Uh, the Mark Wessel series, which I've I've also used a ton at different programs, and then uh, you know, kind of the third the the band books, the essential elements, the accents on achievement, all those, which um, 
have gotten a little bit better. I think Mark Wessels or someone, I can't remember who rewrote some of some of the percussion parts in it. So they've they've increased they've increased in quality a little. Uh, I haven't looked through them. Yeah, I haven't seen any like new editions, but I just remember like looking back through and was like, this is wrong. Like that's not, <laughs> not how you play a roller. Yeah. Uh, in terms notes, of not supposed to be after the primary note there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That flam. Yeah. It says the small note is the right and the other one's the left. I think it should be. Yeah. Um, a, lot of, a lot of interesting things, but obviously Firm Foundations is, is quite a quality text and it seems like it's, it's becoming, a um, you know, integrated in a lot of programs. Uh, but kind of what, what led you to create your own book and can you kind of speak to how that came about, the process of writing it and creating because it's for anyone out there that hasn't seen, it's not just words on a page. It is pictures and diagrams and worksheets, and it's the whole package. So it's yeah. very in depth. I, I wanted something. Um, well, first of all, thank you for your kind words about the book. I appreciate that. Um, and and it, I wanted to make something super comprehensive in all the ways that you're talking about. And and you know, before I go any farther. I, I've absolutely used uh, Kenan's book, um, Kenan Wiley's book. And I've used Mark Wessel's book. I, for a large part of my career, I used both those books, and they are they are great books. And I and I use them and 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 with my programs. Um, I think the biggest thing that led me to do it was I wanted a I wanted a book that had the next thing that you did feel natural, one hundred percent. I, an example that I can give you is in like a lot of times books, you'll get to bucks, right? Bucks is like the thing you'll get to. You haven't played a downstroke yet. They've been starting from the up position. So they've never even lifted from here to go there. Like that's an entire thing, like learning how to do that. And now all of a sudden you have a technique that goes down, up, down like that all in one. And you get there and it doesn't, it didn't feel natural for me, right? And, and that's just a, an example, right? Um, and I think like, uh, just sometimes working through, I would feel like there was a lot of compounded things. And what I wanted to do was break down some of those things. I, I have a big deal with, um, I think sometimes we're, we're asking the students to do so many different things at once. They're learning the notation of something, the playing of something, the understanding of this new thing. And then there's compounded skills on top of other skills in this new thing that we're doing. And so I wanted to go, okay, it's time to learn the downstroke. Let's just learn the downstroke. And I thought there was a way to manage that. Um, I wanted the book to be a page turner. In other words, like the next, the next thing you need to do is on the next page and, and you don't have to skip around a bunch. Whenever I talk to colleagues of mine over the years, everybody talks about how much they skip around. I skip around, I go here, then I go there, then I go here, then I go there, then I go back here, then I go to the end and I come back. And I and and so one of my goals was to write a book, hopefully that people could just turn in, right? Um, I also, and I don't want to be long-winded here. Um, I wanted the warm-ups to to be able to evolve, you know, like the warm-ups at the back of the book. Uh, I felt like they were sometimes they could be out of sight, out of mind a little bit when when there's a there at the end. Um, and so I I made it where all the warm-ups are in every chapter, so that they are in the form that you want them in for that for that moment in time. Wherever they are, eight on a hand needs to look like this. It needs to have these many variations. 
but it might add a variation next week, right? Instead of it all being there at the end and having to kind of decipher through it. So I, I, that was the other thing is I wanted to be able to sequence um, to such a finer extent, including, including the mallet pacing. Um, a lot of the books will start with the mallet playing at the beginning. Well, if you talk to people in Texas, they'll tell you they don't want to start playing mallets at the beginning. And so what I did is made the theory part of the lessons, the first five chapters of the book. So there's, a, there's these foundation chapters that are introduction chapters to the book. And then it gets into chapter one when it's everything's kind of established. And then that's just like theory, all the musical alphabet stuff, the filling in the blanks. How does the musical alphabet apply to the instrument? How does it apply to the staff? These are the, the instruments that we play in mallets. This is what they're called. These are the parts of them. This is nodal point. And then finally, there's a mallet foundation chapter that's an intro to mallets, this big intro when it's time to play mallets so that the... Uh, the teachers and students didn't feel like they were getting behind right from the beginning uh, with the mallet reading that they're skipping and then having to come back to. Um, so that's that's a fairly long answer, but that's I, I that's that's what I wanted it to be. Yeah, no, that's great. I really appreciate the warm ups coming as they evolve, because if anyone hasn't taught a beginner class of twenty and to get twenty sixth graders to go from page twenty three to page 160A to the, light, to the right line, it's, it's hurting cats at that point. The, yeah, half of them are gonna make it. We're gonna lose the other half along the way. And by the grace of God, five of them will just happen to land somewhere within 10, <laughs> 10 pages of it. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah it, makes a, it makes a lot of logical sense. Um, but yeah, uh, so, Again, yeah, the book is, is really great. If anyone out there hasn't checked it out, I, I would definitely recommend it. Um, it kind of feels like, like you're saying, it, it evolves. So there's, uh, I think my favorite thing is it goes from, I, I might have the order wrong, but it goes from like an introduction to, uh, sorry, an introduction to exercises to what I would call workbook type things where you often have small written assignments every now and then, even if it's like labeling or stickings or things like that. Um, but it almost, it almost worked as what I would call like a self-study text. Like if somebody was going to start percussion from the get-go and they couldn't have a teacher, you know, on hand, it feels like a comprehensive enough book that without being long-winded, funny enough, that it could, um, uh, yeah, it could carry a person from beginning to intermediate. Um, of course, you, you need a teacher, but, you know, without the without the teacher there. And yeah. Yeah. If you were stranded on an island, right. And you yeah. this book washed upon shore, like washed up on shore. You were like, OK, all right, I think I'll start. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It, 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 it has enough pictures and descriptions and stuff. And I and I I did that because of kind of what we talked about earlier is is I you know, there's a lot of different situational instructions you know some people are teaching it as a percussion instructor and some people are teaching it as a band director um and then also you know we assume sometimes pedagogy in our in our profession is still fairly young in comparison to things like piano and violin you know um those pedagogies have been studied for for centuries um and and sometimes you know our our, our percussion instructors you know people are looking for the best way to teach the next thing. We all know how to do it, 
but communicating that uh, to to children is different. Um, and 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 it's just you know it's 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 like people uh, who teach who teach drum corps. It's great. It's a great. There's some great techs out there, man, that are fantastic at cleaning a drum line at that level. Try to get a sixth grader to play a double stroke roll, and it's like a different thing, right? It's not it's not the same terminologies even in some ways, and and you have to know what to ask them to do, and most importantly, you have to know when it's going to develop. I'll, I'll tell you a quick, a quick story about this. Um, my, my wife is middle school band director and I met her early in my career. And I remember walking across, she was uh, teaching a, a saxophone class and I heard them and I'm, just, you know, I'm super young. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to them and they sounded like a beginning saxophone. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I made some, uh, some What's the difference between that and advanced saxophone? Hell! <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Well, well, and I made the comment to her. I said, I said, um, I said, man, wow, they, they're, you know, I said, I said something like, not insulting, but like, yeah, you know, they seem like maybe they're struggling a little bit or something like that. And she said, no, they're exactly where they should be right now. They sound exactly like they should sound in October in this time doing this. And sure enough, that class went on and they were really good. And I remember that striking me so, so, um, so much because it, it, it dawned on me that like, I need that skill for my, my kids too. They're not gonna sound like crazy, crazy good when you first start, but what is the sound that is going to lead to them sounding that way? What is what is it that they have to be able to do at what level is going to lead to that and what level will not and what sound won't. And so those are some of the things that I try to even cover that kind of stuff in, in my in the book and in my clinics and stuff about what is going to lead to it being good or what's going to stop it from from being good kind of thing. John, I wanted to ask about the sort of I'll call it the seventh grade year. Uh, because we've talked a lot about like, especially in Texas, you have percussion class where the percussionists are surrounded by percussionists, but it must be like a, uh, maybe a rude awakening or a, just a very strange situation for them to go into a room of other instruments and be stuck at the back of the room and maybe not paid as much direct attention to. So what has been your experience with students after their first year going into that full band class environment? What are the adjustments they're having to make? And what have been some sticking points of that? Sure, that's a great question. Um, I So first of all, it goes back to the original, one of the original questions of like, well, what are you trying to get out of that beginning year? You know, in those band opportunities that they have, I'm trying to teach them about how the band experience will go. You know, how this is how we set up our setup every, every day. And it's gotta be exactly the same every day. Um, you need to be in place at time at, at this time and, and 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 you need to be able to stand by your instrument and not play it. Uh, when we switch pieces, you want to be able to switch pieces and 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 not talk or not make a bunch of noise. We also talk about um, um, the importance of being able to set certain things up and but that can be a sticking point. You don't always have as much time as you would like to do that. Now full disclosure uh, is which is common in Texas. I, I see my, my symphonic band, which is gonna be predominantly seventh graders, and my wind ensembles, which is predominantly eighth graders, you know, depending on the year, 
twice a week. So I'll do a Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday rotation with our two, my two middle school feeders. So in those two days that I come over, I'm able to work with them on things like their all region music or a percussion ensemble. But I'm also there with them in band rehearsals. If the band director says, hey, we really, you know, could you be in the band rehearsal today and just kind of listen to the things that they're doing, make some comments and do all that. That's where you have an opportunity to really talk to them about um, how they're functioning in the band, what the, what's the listen for, um, and, and that sort of thing. If there's a decorum issue you need to address, you, you sort of partner with the band director to do so. Um, there's always a steep learning curve with the setting up and stuff. And, and that sometimes people can be uh, a little impatient with that because it, it can be a sort of unfair at times, right? You know, uh, all these other students, they just get their case and they open it and they assemble their instrument and they're ready. And us, you know, we have we have so much. There's such a learning curve to set up the toms and the the even like yes, the snare drum stays on the stand, but like where should it go every day? And then hey, it's not level today. Somebody adjusted this thing. How do I get it back there? And it's all these different things uh, that you want to use. But just encourage the band directors to be to be patient with them as they're doing that. And and mine are, and 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 then to help the kids through that. So. It, it's if they have the band experience in sixth grade, like I'm talking about with at the winter concert or the spring concert and and they do a percussion ensemble or something like that, they're going to have some experience with it. And, you know, I talked to them about it. Hey, guys, next year when you're a band, you're not going to be able to just tap on your your tap on a drum while, you know, in between things or pieces. So I'm always kind of talking about the next thing, um, the next step to the process. And then, of course, help them in my rotational time during the week. Nice. Yeah, it's, I feel like, yeah, everything you do is very uh, meticulously thought out and prepped for success. Um, so it's, yes, yeah, good example. Yeah, your student teacher's lucky. Um, uh, I student taught, actually, I student taught with, funny enough, Steve Kath. Uh, well, he's great. Steve, he was, I've known Steve for a long time. He's a great percussion instructor. Yeah, he was he was the same way. Like everything was set up so well, and there was a method to the madness. And um, yeah, yeah, I got a got a whole lot out of that. And um Yeah, I imagine. Yeah. Uh hey, so this this will probably be way too broad of a question because we could be here for hours talking about it, but <laughs> Um, your Midwest clinic, um, also called uh, Firm Foundations, um, and of, as well, there's the Majestic video with, you know, with Rick. So your Midwest clinic called Firm Foundations as well, uh, it covered everything basically from selection process of beginners in the first year, all the way through the end of the first year, more or less, um, all those really crucial, fundamental, foundational, you know, spots that need to be there for that first year to be successful. Um, uh, I wasn't able to be at Midwest. Um, I actually have only been at Midwest once, uh, but could you give us kind of a, some of the salient details, some of your takeaways from, from that? We may have already covered them at, at no, no, no. Um, it's, there's, there's some for sure. So I talk about, um, I, I do talk about the selection process. I think it's very important. Uh, we can elaborate farther about that later. Um, if you want, um, and then I, I do talk about the importance of establishing the technique early, like trying to establish a fulcrum and establish, you know, the, the hinge correctly. Um, I, I think some of those things you have, you have a window there for them to be the right degree of right, you know, of correct 
uh, before you have an uphill battle. Um, and then I talk, I do talk about the scaffolding of notation. You know, I, I in my book, I talk a lot about, um, you know, they have triangles and dots to notate the downbeats and upbeats at first and their stickings. And so when I'm teaching certain things, I, I like to teach like the one-to-one -one note ratio. I, I teach note ratios. So the one-to-one -one note ratio is just one note for every one beat. And, and the saying is you put your foot with the metronome and your hands with your feet. And so they just, the coordination of just tapping your toe and perfectly placing your hand with that foot in the metronome in chorus is, is one of the things that starts the timing. And Ben, you had made a comment about that earlier about the timing aspect. That's one of the ways that I do that is to, to, to teach the one-to-one -one note ratio and the two-to-one note ratio. Well, you don't need quarter notes and eighth notes to do that. I just use triangles and dots. And the reason why I'm, I'm making a point about that is because the notational aspect adds a degree there of complexity are when they are messing up on it, are they messing up on it because they're not reading it correctly or because they don't understand the rhythm, right? And and I, I think that's something that that I like to like to drive home. Yeah, um, it, that, that reminds me so much of in college, I had to take a class called teaching reading and writing, like like English, not not music. Yeah. And they said like a lot of students struggle with history, not because they, they're not good at history, but because they can't read, like they can't read their history book. And likewise, yeah, with especially early music students, I can imagine like, it's not that they're stupid and can't figure out rhythms, like just the reading of it and translating that into music is hard. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, there's a, there's a thing in the book that does a, um, uh, oh my God, it's the, uh, offset trainer. And I love, I love this offset trainer. Um, what it is, is it has these, once they do learn eighth notes, right? So they, they, we get through the, the triangles and the dots with the stickings and they learn eighth notes. And then it's this thing that has these little note heads with a dot in it. And those are the optional notes. So I'll tell the students, to play, you know, play through this offset trainer. It's got just a four measures of eighth notes. And the first instruction is to omit the counting of the, of the optional notes. So they'll go, and we use the Eastman counting system in my district where I'm from, I've used both. Uh, but they'll go one tay, two tay, three tay, four tay, one, two, three, four, one tay, two tay, three tay, four tay, 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 one, right? And they don't know what they're doing. When they're doing that, all they're doing is leaving out the counting of these little funny note head things. That's all they know. And the next step is to leave out the playing, but not the counting, right? So then they'll go one, uh, one te, two te, three te, four te, 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 one. Now we don't go that fast. They think it's super neat, right? We go through that whole thing. And then the third step is to leave out both. Well, then what do you have right there? You have that, you have these eighth notes, isolated eighth notes in, on the downbeat and the upbeat. And some kid will walk up to me some, some years, they'll go, hey, that was really neat when we just played like on the upbeat like that. Is it like, is there a notation? Is there a way to like write that? That's awesome. And I, I kind of jokingly, I, I'm with myself, I go, hey, you know, I'll, I'll think about that. That's a great idea. Maybe <laughs> next week, maybe next week I'll come up with something. They go, Okay, Mr. Bingaman, thanks. I'm not kidding, right? And they walk away and I'm just laughing, right? Because the next week I teach eighth rest. But when I put that eighth rest in front of them, they have to go, tay, 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 tay. They're not struggling anymore with playing an upbeat isolated 
They're just focused on the notation of something that they can already do. That's why I wrote the book, right? <laughs> That's it. That's why I did it for that kind of stuff. Um, so like, I don't I even remember the original question now, but like I got into that where like, <laughs> Where that's that that is that that's the thing right there for me. No, that's awesome. Yeah, I love that idea of yeah they they do it but they don't know what they're doing and then they learn what they're doing and uh, yeah that's that's cool. Um, but we had a good Facebook question from Andrew Smith. I always use the analogy in percussion methods because the two places I've taught it primarily or three are uh, Nevada, Virginia, and Missouri. And at least uh, Virginia, kind of the standard it seemed to be was you walk into band, <clears throat> you pick your instrument, and you have a good time. Um, so there wasn't too much of a selection process. And my, my thing I always tell the class is, yeah, imagine our, this is our beginning class, and we're going to go make a commune together. And now half of us want to be tarot card readers. One person wants to make bread, and the other five want to be you know, they just want to write poetry. That's awesome. Those are great things, but we got to have somebody building the house and somebody yes. doing something else and a doctor. So, yeah. So when you have that beginning band concert and you can't play Frosty the Snowman in December and your administrator comes knocking on your door wondering why you didn't put on a show, yeah, you got to, selecting, uh, selecting beginners for an instrument is not a negative thing. It, helps them be successful, helps us be successful. The Andrew's question is in regard, it's kind of a two-parter, in regards to the audition process, uh, he puts in parentheses, choosing your percussionist, what is a positive thing that a student does or exhibit that sticks out to you and makes you really want them as a percussionist? And what makes you know they'll be successful as a percussionist based on that audition or tryout? Man, that is a that is a broad question. You know, uh, it's and and I and I, I I definitely would like to answer it. Um, so I have a I have a two round process that I do where the students come in because I want to see them you know twice. Um, and and first of all, you know, selection process is so important for every instrument. It's like you said, you know, fifty percent of the people want to do this, and band is so much like that, right? Like where it's like. Uh, um, uh, where everybody wants to play saxophone or percussion or something like that, but we can't all do it. The, the reality of it is, is like a student that really should not do it will enjoy it for about a week and then they won't. And a student that gets selected, for instance, they're, they're gonna be the next great trumpet player, but they didn't really think about trumpet before they showed up. They, in a week, they'll really like it because they, they're good at it, right? So we all like what we're good at. So, so that was a great point you made. Um, I want the students to, first of all, be able to take instruction. Like when I say to do certain things, I look at the way that they're able to take instruction. I'm looking at the way uh, that they naturally move their hands. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the way that they can perceive music. So I have, a, I have like four tracks that I've been using forever um, that I'll play the first two in the first round. And I just put on a piece of music after I've asked them, you know, learn, taught them how to, you know, make some basic strokes or whatever. And they just have to keep time. And I tell them, hey, don't try to rock out or anything. You're not giving a concert. They all kind of giggle. And I said, and I'll, I'll even demonstrate. I'll go like this. Mary had a little lamb, little lamb. That's all I'm doing. I'm just keeping time, right? So I put on a, I put on a uh, piece of music and see what happens. 
And you can tell a lot from that, right? Like if they can't tell where the beat is in that piece of music, then that's probably something that's, that's, uh, that's not good. Um, another physical thing now, cause I think this is like a two part thing, right? There's like the physical aspects and then there's like the other part of it. Um, how well they can tap their toe and play at the same time, right? Like if they're, now their coordination doesn't have to be perfect, but it's also like, if it's really, really bad, if they struggle to do that, that's probably not something that you want to see. Um, and then of course, everybody does the, the, you know, I play, you play thing, right? How they repeat it. Some nuances to that though, are do they repeat it in the phrase as well as repeat it in time? So if I go da, 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 and they go ta, 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 ta. Well, yes, they repeated it, but they should have heard where it, where it went right? They should have heard that it was supposed to start on count one right after that. And, and when you get the student that's like, that does that, they for sure will do it every time, right? Because it doesn't feel right to them not to, you know? Um, and then from the other side of that, things like eye contact, you know, are really important. Um, how quickly that they, they like will correct something or how, how much effort they put into correcting something that you said. Uh, hey, could you use your wrist just a little bit more? And that kid that just immediately starts using more wrist or the student that like made no change whatsoever, right? So you're just, you're looking at that, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah uh, Emily Tanner uh, Patterson had this really great quote she shared one time about the selection process where she was like, um, I'd rather break their heart for an afternoon than make them hate music for their life. Man, that is great. And I was That's just like, what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, man, I'm telling you, I've told parents that, because, you know, I, every year you'll feel, you'll feel all kinds of questions with it. And, and I, I don't want to try to scare anybody. I don't have a lot of, like, hate from that. You know, most of the times the parents come in on my first round, they can see it. 99% of the time, they see exactly what you see. Like, I've, I can't tell you how many times they're walking out and the mom gives that look like, okay. You know, like <laughs> she knows what just happened. Like they're not going to make it, you know. Um, but I, I tell people that like, hey, if they get in that class, they're going to like it for a day or two. And then when they're the only one that just can't do what we're doing, they're going to really dislike it. They're going to dislike man. And and I man, yeah, that's a great quote. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah, thanks, Andrew uh, Smith, for the question. Yeah, that's a yeah, good Andrew's a great guy, man. I know, I know Andrew very well. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, so do you have any upcoming projects or any future plans for Firm Foundations 2.0 or anything like that on the horizon? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, I, I, you know, I've, I've thought the only thing that I could see myself doing is it, it does seem like I've talked to a lot of people that are looking at using the book this next year, or I've, I've had tons of people telling me that they're going to use it this next year. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll see that. I wonder if there's something I can do to help support the people that are using the book. Um, you know, I thought about a video series or something like that to help support. Maybe that's something that people could, could, you know, make comments about is something that if they would be interested in something like that. Um, in terms of writing another book right now, um, no, 
uh, <laughs> you made the comment earlier that uh, that there's not that many of those out there, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a. It's I, I a gave part of my life. soul for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's. I can only imagine from proofing the text to the notation to the graphics to the layout to the order. That's um. Yeah, the text and the, the text seems like the easy part. It's yeah, yeah, <laughs> the right. photos, diagrams, layout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and 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 you know, just I, I would be remiss to say like if I didn't, if, you know, like uh, I had I was fortunate enough to have two former students uh, help me on this book, and so uh, these are two students that I had. John Horn, Houston Youngman was my um, engraver. You know, he did a lot of like the musical notation stuff and made it look really good. You know, I wrote everything. I would write it, you know, by hand or something like that, or, you know, some few times on, on a program or something, but he would like really, you know, make it look good. And then I have one form of a graphic designer, um, uh, Sharon Matthew. And she did a lot of the, a lot of the stuff in terms of the direction of the book, the way the book looks and, and 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 we made those decisions together and, and she was able to help my vision uh come to come to life you know so i i definitely was like hey i want this to look this way and this diagram has to do this and so i i i gotta tell you that those two were really important there you know and their names are in the book and stuff but uh very important yeah i i mean i'm no graphic designer by any means but i mean even coming up with my own logo to slap on a piece of sheet music is is sometimes challenging enough. Um, yeah, I can't imagine doing the whole book. When I was student teaching, um, again, not very good experience, but one of the things they did was uh, they just, the tubas in the bottom band were just awful, just couldn't do anything. And so a lot of days they were like, all right, Mr. Charles, take the, take the two tubas out from the bottom band and, and work with them. Um, so I got to know my tuba fingerings pretty well. But uh, I've always, like with my college students too, I'm always big on musical terms. And so with my college students, I'm always, you know, what is, it says maestoso, what does that mean? It says seco, what does that mean? And so we get an F in the, in the tuba part. I was like, what, what is, what does the F stand for? And we kind of, you know, squirm around for a bit. No one knows. I'm like, okay, so the F is short for forte. What, what does forte mean? And one kid's like, oh, oh, I know. I was like, okay, yeah, what does forte mean? He goes, oh, yeah, like, like one tay, two tay, three tay, four tay. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, not quite. <laughs> what Let's try that one again. Yeah, honest intent. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's funny. That's staying in. That's not going anywhere. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, at least it wasn't something super inappropriate. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, it's funny. Well, hey, um, as we come to come to a wrap, yeah, John, thanks so much for hanging out. And um, yeah, it's just great. Um, I love, I feel like beginner pedagogy is such a fun and interesting thing to talk about because um, there's, there's so many starting places and approaches and sequencing and how do you do this? How do you do that? And kind of the minutia of, I, I have to think about it every year when I go back and teach percussion methods about, all right, let's do a, you know, let's do bucks. Okay, downstroke. It's like, all right, let me let me stop and think about how do I do a downstroke and how do I get them to do a downstroke correctly. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, man, writing this book, it, it really challenges you because you have to know what you believe and why you believe it. 
you know, like, you know, you talk about, yeah, of course, I know how I, this is my philosophy doing outstroke. And you go, wait a minute, is that exactly what I do? Uh, what, yes, I, I guess, or, you know, actually there's some nuances to it. Well, how do I want to communicate that? You know, you really have to think about your approach on all that stuff. Yeah, for sure. And it's tough. Um, yeah. Props to y'all out there doing it. Um, Cause yeah, that's where, that's where it all starts. Um, well, hey, John, thanks again, man, for hanging out. It was, it was so great to meet you again and, and hear about everything. And yeah, if you're listening, um, you can find Firm Foundations for the Beginning Percussionist by John Bingman. It's a great text. Uh, you can get it on Lone Star uh, through John's personal website, I believe. And is it available yeah, J- anywhere else? jbpublish.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is what the book looks like here, Firm Foundations. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, we'll, we'll be sure to drop a link and all that stuff. But yeah, thanks for hanging out. And we'll catch everybody else on, wow, episode 321. Still blows me away every time hearing the number. Um, so great. See y'all later. Thank you.